Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, welcome along. Aaron Noonan here. Great to have you with me for another week on the V8 Sleuth Podcast. And we had so much great feedback over the course of the last week with our first part of our John Cleland chat. You've been hanging out. Here it is. It's part two of my sit-down with the two-time British touring car champion, John Cleland. Now, part one was a bit more super touring and uh, British touring cars and his early years. So part two that you're about to listen to, we very much got into his love affair with Australia, with Bathurst and with Mount Panorama. It's 30 years, this is scary, since he first came here. That was 1993 when he drove uh, for Advantage Racing in the Mobile Commodore with Peter Brock. And he talks openly about PV, about that experience 30 years ago. And then his other Bathurst trips with Triple Eight in the Super Tours, with Cameron McLean in the Greenfield Mowers car, with Gibson Motorsport, and of course with his great friends from Aubrey, Kim and Brad Jones. We talked to about that time he ended up on his roof at the mountain after that crash with Jason Plato in 2004. National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions, as always, are part of this episode as well, where JC answers some of your questions that you're so great to send in in the lead up to this chat. You might remember in part one, if you've heard it, I didn't have to do much talking. He is such a great storyteller. I have just sat back for this podcast and, like you, listened to his wonderful tales. So here we go. Buckle up. Part two of John Cleland on the V8 Sleuth podcast. Everyone's asked us about Brock because he is still, even many years after he's gone, a, a massive name here in our part of the world. And when you drove with him, a lot of people think that's the first connection, but you'd, of course, driven the old big banger that went over to the UK and you'd driven one of his European championship cars at the TT. But was it Gao that clicked that deal for you to come out and, and drive with Peter in, in 93 in that mobile car? Yeah, it was. I mean, we, we had... Um my father had gone on, on holiday to Australia to visit my brother who lives down uh, in Perth. And he went to Wanneroo or whatever the track is over there and met Brock and um, ended up on behalf of General Motors in the UK buying the, the 05 um, Holden, which I think is now uh, the, the Commodore, which is now in the Bathurst Museum. Um that was the car that came to the UK, as I understand it. <clears throat> and we used it in, in a, I think, called the, the Thunder Saloon series. So I, I kind of knew how to drive five-litre big horsepower cars. So I already had that idea. And Gow, as I say, was a really good pal. And um, he lined me up because of the connection with Brock to go out there and drive with Brock in, what, 93, I think it was. And... I mean, he's, Gow said to me, you know, you know Brock? And I said, well, absolutely I know Brock. I mean, uh, at the time we, we would be able to watch all the Bathurst live during the day on UK television, all the in-car stuff. And, you know, I knew who Brock was. Absolutely I did. Um, 
he said he won't let you fiddle with anything. He he won't let you touch and adjust anything. You, you know, he's six foot and you're five foot, nothing. You know, you're going to have a problem. But if you're up for it, then fine. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm up for it. So I fly over there. Um, I think it was an Easter weekend. The guys used to do a, a press day at Bathurst before the main event in October. And I flew out for that, leaving Oulton Park uh, race weekend, got on a plane, flew to Australia, met the the, the team um, and met Brock. And he invited me up to uh, the Pink Ponderosa where, where he and uh, Bev lived. And um, I'm up, up there for lunch and he could not have been nicer. He just could. He was a lovely, lovely man. And I learned a lot from him in, in many respects, the, the way that he dealt with people, whether they were um, the ruffians or whether they were bankers with suits on. Um, he just had a lovely way with people. And um, I, I, I learned loads from him. But you know, nothing could have been further from the truth because he could not have been more accommodating for me. I... You know, what do you want? We'll need to sit with a seat like that, but, you know, we can put some adjuster on here for the brake balance and we can do this and that and and so on. And we we, we he went out and he did his, his, um, his showing off with the press in the car at, uh, at Bathurst. And then I got in it to see the track for the very first time other than watching it on television. Holy moly. I got in the car and it started to rain. So the very first laps ever of Bathurst were in the wet. And... It, I didn't cover myself in glory, I have to say. I, I wasn't. I went away from that test thinking, Jesus, um, this is going to be tough going. But we had already shipped a car. We left Bathurst that night on a private plane with Brock and the team, and we flew to Phillip Island where they'd sent another car down to Phillip Island for us to test so I can get a better idea with it. And they were obviously testing lots of other things as well. So first of all, this car had a passenger seat in it and Brock took me around Phillip Island, which, again, has got to be my second most favourite circuit in the world after Bathurst. So he takes me around, I'm passenger, and uh, he's pointing out where to clip, what to do, what gear. You know, we look for this, we do that, blah, blah, blah. And um, then let me loosen the car. And he would occasionally get in, set a benchmark time, and... At the end of the day, they threw some new tyres on the car and uh, I went quicker than Brock. And he went out and went quicker and then I went back out and went quicker again. And I think at that point I realised I knew how to drive these V8s. And I think at that point the team knew that I could handle the thing. I just had to learn Bathurst. And, and that took me more than one year to learn Bathurst, let me tell you. But uh, I, I just, Brock was a lovely, lovely man and, and, and you know, real great shame uh, that, that he got involved in such a probably a silly accident, really. But it's usually silly accidents that kill people. But he, uh, he was just a joy to work with and a funny man as well. You know, he knew when to get out of the car when things were going to break, uh, which I'm sure he did in that first stint at Bathurst when it threw the tail shaft off. I'm sure he knew there was something about to go wrong with it, and he, 
he radioed and said, yeah, right, we're going we're gonna to change drivers now. Yeah, car's perfect, all that, you know, and I get in the car and it threw a tail shaft off it. So <laughs> he said, no, it was fine when I was in the car. <laughs> but um, no, I, I really, I'm, I owe Alan Gow, you know, a huge thanks for getting me out to Australia to firstly meet Brock, do Bathurst, and that opened the door to do what I've done 13 Bathursts now and, you know, another 10 Sandowns and, and um, Queenslands. So I, I I loved it, absolutely loved it. And it was just great to be part of, of the Brock family for a while. Yeah, I got really close to a lot of the team and I remember a guy called Mort who was a team, team uh, manager and lots of the people in the team. And it was really emotional, the, the you know, the Sunday night, after the race, and you know, I was getting on a plane in the morning to leave, and you know, I really had we struck up a real bond and a real friendship, and I, um, I, I really missed them all, you know, and it, it would have been great to to have gone back and spent a lot more time and and do more of the series out there because that that whole thing just seemed to suit my my mentality, my style of driving, and you know. I quite like the straight talking way that you blokes have out there. You know, I'm up for that. And you came back and drove, you know, the, the privateer stuff you mentioned before with the, the pinnacle car with Tony Scott. There was a run, I think, with Cameron McLean with the Greenfield Falcon, with Rodney Forbes in the, the Gibson car. So I guess it was a case, John, of that you loved coming so much and we loved having you that, all right, those cars weren't the top cars or the number one team cars or the the race winning potential, but it was just a race that if if a deal could be done and they could find a way to get you here on a plane, you were here. Didn't matter. You just wanted to be a part of it. Was that the case? Uh, it was. It was absolutely the case. Um, I mean, you're right. There was uh, none of those cars really, apart from the Pinnacle car, which we managed, as I say, to drag up to I think seventh place. But the others, um, the the Greenfield car and um, the, the, the what do you call it the, the Rodney Forbes car didn't really um, make the grade um, it was only when I got back with, uh, with, with I got in tow with Brad Jones and the team that they gave me a car that was capable of doing that job and God I remember the, that was it 2001 when Brad and I finished second and we were 21st on the grid and we could not get that bucket of shit to handle in qualifying. And we changed everything overnight. I think to, to use one of Brad's phrases, we lifted the wiper blades up and shoved a new car underneath them. And I think that was exactly what we did. We changed everything. And then, as you know, it was a pretty horrible um wet, slippy. I think we had hailstones during that race where all sorts of stuff. But between us, we managed to pedal it through to finish one second or whatever it was behind Mark Scaife in the works holding. And for me, that was an absolute highlight to be able to stand up on that podium and looking down the way many others had done before and the way I remember Brock standing looking down for years. It was just a pretty special, a real lump in the throat moment. And I just absolutely loved the whole thing it was any excuse to get to Bathurst for me it just was there was something so special about it and even the spectators you know Brock took me years before up into the top in the mountain and 
you know, I was warned by everybody, you don't go up there because they eat their young up there and they're pretty wild. Uh, Brock took me up and because it was Brock, then everybody loved him and we were fine. Um, the fact that they then, they, they bring a, a settee and chairs and a barbie and, a, and, and, and the esky and all that. And then at the end of the race, they set fire to the, 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 the furniture and just walk off and leave it. And, and there's just, there's something old school about that whole Bathurst thing, and I loved it. It was just my type of race. Is that 2001 Bathurst, does that stand, obviously it's the best Bathurst that you, the best Bathurst result, the podium, but is that your favourite Bathurst of all the ones that you, you came and did? Yeah, I, I think um, the the uh, when we went out with the little super tourers, I mean from, you know, you go out pit lane, you go up the hill and you go up, up and you keep climbing up and up and up and then you get up to to um, the, the skyline and whatnot. Before that, you know, these little super tourers were a slog up that hill where a V8 was gone. But then over the top, the little super tourers, over the top and down the dipper and halfway down the straight, they were really nimble little things. Um, and, you know, nowhere near the same fun as a V8, but they were... It got your attention from the top. As soon as it levelled out on the top, got your attention all the way down the dip and all the way down the hill. Um, but the one with Brad, to, to we had a number of things happened because of the weather that day. We we lost a radio in the car. We couldn't communicate. That We hadn't a plan for it. We'd, as we changed drivers, we were strapping a, a handheld radio inside our overalls to uh, to make anything work, to any communication. And it was sometimes we would maybe have made slightly better calls had we had a radio properly connected um, when the weather was getting really challenging. But as it turned out, you know, we fought off the likes of Murph, who I think was third that day, and, and lots of others as well. And, you know, with my experience at the place wasn't massive, but we managed to pull... A decent result, and uh, I think Brad set the fastest lap of the race, or something, on the second of the second last lap, or something. And if he'd set the same lap time in qualifying, we'd have been on the front row of the grid. And that's what I said to him in the press conference: "You've been faffing around all weekend. Where if you'd done that right at the beginning, we'd have been, we'd have won this race." <laughs> so, who knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Because you uh, you you ran with Brad's team for I think from 01 till 05, so five years in a row there, um, you obviously became pretty tight with the the Jones clan. Do you is that the team BJR that you when you watch the odd bit of highlights of supercars or you read online, you're looking to see where those cars are? Are they are they your team in in the supercars championship today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I um. Kim and, and Fran, his wife, came across and stayed with us uh, either a Christmas or a New Year or something like that. And, you know, we, we've met up. Um, it, we keep in touch. Uh, Brad, I, I haven't spoken much with Brad since since I left Australia, but, you know, he's the one that's right in the team. And I know Kimmy's not involved in the team nowadays. And it's, it's Brad and young Macaulay. And, I, yes, I do watch them and, you know, their pain is my pain still because I treat them very much still as a, as my team. You know, the team that I enjoyed. I spent more time with them. I I knew them a whole lot, and I, I, I 
when they weren't doing so well or they'd have a shunt, I took it just as badly as Brad did, I'm sure. And there was also a time too, John, that Jamie, your son, who you, you who does a lot of race work now, he spent time working at BJR. He lived here in Australia for a few years. Yeah, I, I um, got – Jamie needed to um, get a bit of experience um, outside of the business here. So I got Brad – I got Kim, actually, to get him a job with the team, and he spent a year there working with them and did all the stuff. And he's a very good uh, number one on on any car. He, when he came back here, he works for me in the business now, um, but up until this year, he's been running um, Porsches in British series. He's been running Porsches in the in the WEC. He's been running an Aston Martin in the the, the World Sports Car Championship as well for a, a, a team called TF. Um, he's done Le Mans now. Um, he's done Spa. He's done the Nurburgring. So he's he's kind of been ticking off all the boxes and he's he's good enough he, he when we first got my vectra back and we looked at it, we lifted the bonnet and looked at it and went holy moly that's a pretty complicated looking car and um he said too and um he can now do the jobs on that car we can remove the engine the box the transaction we can move anything on it faster than the works team used to do He's really very handy on the spanners. And uh, at the time, he jokes about it because when in, in the days when I ran that car properly in 97, 98, he was just a kid uh, running about the paddock, stealing the Mars bars and the bottles of Coca-Cola out the team truck. And he said if he'd known that years later we'd be owning that car, Instead of stealing Mars bars, he'd have been stealing discs and pads and uprights and stuff. But uh, <laughs> unfortunately, un- unfor- unfortunately, Roland Dane would have uh, stopped him doing that. <laughs> I'm sure there would have been an invoice from RD somewhere along the line. Um, yeah, Ro- Ro- Roland-, Roland would have done that for sure. One of the things we love uh, with V8 Sleuth, which is what we do, we love the the history of the sport and, and everything that's come before us. But where do you sit on memorabilia? Are you a hoarder? Have you kept everything from over the years with suits and helmets and bits and pieces, or has it all gone to other places? Where are you? Are you, are you where are you on the scale of one to ten, from hoarder to I've got nothing? No, I've got everything. I've got everything. I, unfortunately, um, I've got every crash helmet, other than because I like most professional drivers, you 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 do a deal with a manufacturer, and you know I've given away a, a Simpson or an, a, a Stan Twenty One helmet over the years, all painted up and complete with radio and all that in it at charity events, and I've given away the odd pair of overalls at charity events. Unfortunately, I wish I'd kept every crash helmet, and the only one I didn't keep was my very first one, which I, I had to sell to buy the next one. The first one was an open face helmet. And um, I had to sell it to buy the, the, the next one. Anyway, overalls, shirts, um, hats, team gear. I've got all the, 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 I've got all the Pinnacle Brock stuff. I've got all the Brad Jones stuff. I've got all the um, um, Greenfield Moore stuff from your side. I've got the attic is, 
I've got the warmest attic in Britain because I've got all these race suits up in my attic and there's, you know, they're better than um, insulation. And in, in, in my office, um, I've got a, a nice little bookcase that's now been converted into a, um, a, a crash helmet case um, where I've got dozens of crash helmets. I just keep them. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I know what will happen. When I pass on to uh, the big um, paddock in the sky, my sons will cash them up on eBay or somewhere. But um, right now, I, I catch Jamie occasionally pulling a set of gloves out of the attic and asking me to sign them. And he even had me sign some of his old gloves and um, put them on eBay as genuine Donington race-winning gloves, but they were actually his, not mine. So <laughs> he, 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 he flogs a whole load of that stuff on, on there. But I'm, I love the memorabilia. I've got, you know, lots of pictures of my old cars. I've got stickers and posters and, you know, I don't have... My office at home has all that stuff in them, but um, no overalls on show. If you came into my business, you wouldn't know I'd been involved in motorsport. Uh, there's none of that. Um, quite what I'll do with it doesn't matter. But I just, I love the history of the sport. I love, you know, going back to y your side of it, you know, the Brock side and, you know, what he did. And, you know, I've got Brock books and I've got loads of stuff about, you know, what happened down there. And then again, the same in Formula One. I, I love... Um, the, the early years of Formula One. I've got a a, a, a wonderful picture about the same era. I was telling you about the Jim Clark pictures. I've got a picture of um, Fangio, Stilling Moss and Dennis Jenkinson all standing talking together at the Silverstone Grand Prix, probably in 19, you know, 65 or 66 or something. Um, and I've just got some really lovely old pictures that just to look back at them and, and see some of the people and some of the names and, you know, mentioned Stirling Moss there. Um, a couple of years ago at, at Goodwood, I was in the, the St Mary's, uh, which is the saloon car race for the old bombers. And in the race, I was having a problem with, with the car I was driving. It wasn't a lead car. It was somewhere in the middle of the pack. And um, I came up to lap this old Jaguar, which was Rowan Atkinson's Jaguar being driven by Stirling Moss. And when I drew up alongside it, I realised it was Stirling that was driving it. So what I did was I passed it, and then I let him pass me, and then I passed it again. So we did that for a whole lap. And just so I can say that I've actually raced against Stirling Moss. I mean, it's stuff like that that I just think, I quite like all that history. I know there's a lot of guys don't give a shit about it, but without knowing a bit about the history of our sport, you know, what are you going to remember, guys? Come on. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. That's a very cool, uh, very cool story. Uh, we've got a bunch of questions from our, our listeners that I wanted to zip through. Uh, it's the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions. The museum's at Mount Panorama. You might remember it. It's on the outside of the bottom of Conrod Strait. They've got yep. an amazing amount. I tell you what, we've got to get you back to Bathurst at some point, sometime soon to come to a race and to check it out because I think you'll love some of the stuff that's in there. Uh, but some of these questions from our um, our listeners are pretty good. Uh, and Corey Carroll, he's got this question, which I was virtually asking, is there any chance that you might come back to Australia 
to take in a Bathurst 1000 some October sometime soon. <laughs> um, I would um, I would love to come back and uh, take a Bathurst in for sure. Um, I would be more than happy to get involved and and some commentary during the day and you know a bit of pit lane walking about and all that kind of stuff. I would love to do that because you know I I know I say this and I am I am not blowing smoke up the Bathurst people or any of that. I just there was something magical for me about driving to Bathurst. The only other circuit that this ever happened to me with was when we did the um, World Cup at Monza in Italy uh, with the touring cars. I drove into the to the park, which is Monza, and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. It was that kind of place. And... Every time I drive out of Bathurst, whichever shitty little house we're staying in or whatever, and you drive towards it and you see these words, Mount Panorama, buried in the hillside, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up again. It's just something special that brings back great memories for me. It is this year the 60th anniversary race of the great race at Bathurst because the first one was back in 1963, 2023, this year. So, what's your diary? How are you uh, around October 5 to 8 this year? It's a good question. I will, uh, I'll have a look and see if we can uh, pull that together because what I'd, um, what I'd like to do is try and do that. Um, my wife, through all of my motorsport career, wasn't really a big motorsport fan, to be fair. She put up with it. <laughs> but um, even if I have to come out there myself, what is the date of it, did you say? October the 5th to October the 8th this year. 5th to the 8th. Right. I'm going to put that in my diary and I'm going to see if we can um, do something. I'm going to try and do that. So, yeah, in answer to the question, I would I would absolutely love to um, come back to Bathurst. Well, we would love to have you. So let's uh, let's see what we can work on here because I'm sure our mutual friend Bradley in Albury would be happy to sponsor a first class airfare for a little Scottish fellow to come on out again. I'm sure he'd be happy to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I I remember fighting tooth and nail with Bradley and Kim to even get paid to do the race. And then we get um, – they had a deal with Louder Air, and I'm flying business class with Louder Air. What I didn't realise, they had staff tickets. So the staff tickets for business class only happened if there were no paying customers. And I got to Vienna once where I was doing a flight. You know, you, you would fly louder air from London to Vienna. And then you'd do the long haul flight from Vienna down. I got there and they bumped me off my blinking business class seat. And I said, no, you can't do that. I've got business class. No, you haven't. You've got cattle class. This is a cheap ticket bought by your team. So I had to phone Kimmy up and say, Kim, I'm in Vienna and I'm not coming any fucking further because you just bumped me on a cheap ticket. 
no, 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 go and get on a, a, get on a plane, get on a plane, it's anyhow, get here, <laughs> we'll pay it. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? Not so, surprised at all. Yeah, exactly. So, so getting Kimmy or, or, or Bradley to pay for anything is a challenge. True. This is very true. And it leads me actually to the next question from Michael Burson because he would like to know, what's your best Brad Jones story? <laughs> there are so many stories about Bradley, but um, yeah, there's one that it probably in the context, it's hard to try and understand this one, but Bradley, I believe, used to do a, a Monday um uh, radio broadcast after a race weekend, and it was it was a usual you know two comment two um, uh, 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 there was a him and her on the radio station and Bradley was interviewed, and I think it was Mother's Day on the Sunday, and uh, you know what Bradley's like he can be a bit deadpan, and um, one of the, the, the radio DJs said, and Bradley, yesterday for Mother's Day, what did you buy your mother? And Bradley said, nothing. Oh, Bradley, that's terrible. Why did you not buy your mother anything? And he said, she died 10 years ago. And it was just absolutely deadpan Bradley. Taken, and then there was that hush for a moment. And then he burst out laughing because it was just the funniest thing. And I just, I can visualize him saying that and the, and the DJs thinking, oh dear, we've opened something here. And Bradley pulled the place apart. But that was, he's so serious on one hand, but he's so funny on another. This is true. This is very true. But that's my story of Bradley. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Hey, there's another one here from Brock Gain, who's a regular listener of our podcast, uh, did you ever confront or talk to Jason Plato after that Bathurst incident where you ended up on your head? Was that the only time that you ever rolled a car at a racetrack as opposed to a rally? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I've never, I mean, I pride myself in never having been involved in big accidents. I mean, even my rallying accidents were, you know, I didn't fortuitously hit any trees I usually rolled into the moss and the and the grass and a bit of gravel here and there and they weren't massive accidents I mean that one at Bathurst was the biggest one I've ever had uh, as it was skidding down the road on its roof and anyone that's ever tried to get in or out of a V8 supercar um, and it's on it's sitting on its wheels will know how hard and how many bars and cage pieces there are and cables and pipes and drinks bottles and god only knows what but when it's upside down on its roof um and the windows were made of lexon so they didn't break and i i couldn't get out of the car i i i, I couldn't get out of it and i wasn't having a flap to myself but i could see fluid dribbling down um the dash and i wasn't sure if it was water or if it was 
petrol or, or what. I had no idea. So now I was starting to panic a little bit and I could not break the window. And I had to kick the living daylights out of this thing. I, can't, I think I came out through the passenger's window. Um, I had to kick the window out of it because of this plastic Lexon stuff. And um, that was the only way I managed to scramble out. And I, I, it was just, yeah, I mean, it was a bit unnecessary. Maybe, maybe I should have... I was right under the boot lid of one of the Kmart cars, I think. And I was running really well at the time, and we were in a position... I was aiming, lining him up. There was three or four cars in front. I was lining him up under the back bumper to, to outbreak down into the final corner. And as I come up around there, and I'm lining him up just to, to duck to one side, and here was Plato um, in the middle of the road. Um, but he'd never really got his head around the track either. He, he, hadn't, he hadn't got a decent time. He couldn't pull the time out of it. He'd kissed the wall at turn one, so he had to go, oh, no, final turn. So he had to drive the entire track with two punctures. Um, and unfortunately, I, if, the, if the team said to me, there's a car on the track, then I didn't hear them. If there was a, a yellow flag at the beginning of the chase, I have to say, I never saw it. And I was too intent on this battle. Um, and then I plucked out from the to the left of this, Kmart car, and there was Jason. And as it speared it on its roof, um, skidded down there. When I got out of it, the medical crews uh, wanted to put me in the back of the car with Jason. And I said, no, nah, you better get another medical car because if I go in the back of that, he'll need more than a medic if I get in the back of that car with him. And um, it was left like that. And to be fair... We never really discussed it. We've never discussed it, no matter how often we bump into each other. We've never discussed that. But he got a fine, a fairly hefty fine um, after the race for that. Um, but it did, I don't know, quarter million bucks worth of damage to Kimmy's car, which I was uh, gutted at because we were we were on for a pretty good result there. But hey-ho. People, people will remember me for the Brock tail shaft part and the skidding down the road of my roof with Bradley's car, I suppose. <laughs> hey, you got to be remembered somehow. you got to be remembered somehow. Uh, Jeff Bishop's got a Correct. little question here. I, I like this. Are you ever going to or have you been asked to write a book or do a book? Yeah, I've been asked to write a book frequently. Um in fact, as um, a guy pestered me senseless um, no more than six or nine months ago to do this book. And my worry with doing a book would be that it doesn't sell. Um, my worry with doing a book is that uh, I would end up having to buy all the copies of it. And is there really anything interesting to, to put in a book? So I suppose that's the thing. Um it would be it would be good. Uh, I'd be best to do it if I'm going to do it. I'd be best to do it before my memory fades completely. But I'm sure there's a few stories in there. There's also quite a number of stories that I would probably need a lawyer for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are there are some slanderous things that that might come out, and there's some things that probably shouldn't be discussed. 
But that's motorsport. I mean, gee, there's been some hoods and crooks and vagabonds in motorsport over the years, and I, I've met a few of them. So a book would be an entertainment value. But as I say, my, my worry would be that nobody buys my book and I have to give it to my family and friends for Christmas, you know. Well, it's one way to make sure that you've got Christmas gifts for the next five years. That's probably one positive <laughs> that could come out of it either way. Hey, um, Chris Morley, a couple more. We'll, we'll finish up soon, mate. We've got a couple more questions. Um, Chris Morley wants to know, what was your favourite V8 supercar that you drove? Um, probably the, the first one, the Brock car, um, because it was, it was Brock, it was mobile, it was a Holden and my, um, my connections with General Motors, uh, probably the Brock car because there was something about it. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the, 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 the likes of the Brad Jones cars were, they'd evolved over the years and they were much more complicated cars Inside, there was lots of things to fiddle with and play with and, you know, fancy dash. And nowadays, the steering wheel and all the stuff that goes with it's all moved again. Um, mine was an H-pattern box. I don't think I ever remember driving a V8 supercar with a, with a sequential box. So I liked the Brock car because it was fairly basic and a bit fundamental. You know, there was nothing fancy. A wee bit like the Cavalier I had. Um, I think there was three dials and two switches in the whole car, whereas... The last car I drove in 99 had multiple pages on the dash to play with and God only knows how many adjustments in the car. So I think probably the the Brock car, because it was Brock, because it was Mobile One, and um, just because it was my first introduction to Bathurst and to Australia, really, for that matter. So, yeah, that would be my favourite. It's a good pick. It's a very good pick. Uh, Sean Scott has listened to every episode of our podcast, and we've done nearly 300 in the last five years, but we've never asked one of the questions that he's posed. So I'm going to ask his question so he'll be a happy man. What's the worst car that you have ever sold anyone, John? And I'm sure statute of limitations exists here. <laughs> that I'd sold anyone. <laughs> Ah, dear God. You're right. The statute of limitations comes in here. It would, you'd have to go back. I mean, I swapped with a a travelling man, like a Jippo. Um, that's probably wrong to say that. He was one of our travelling brothers. He was a car dealer, friend of mine. And for some reason or another, I had a whole raft of old junky cars, you know, nothing fancy. And back in the 70s, um, when we were way, we were used car dealers, and I swapped five part exchanges um, for this Chevrolet Malibu, Chevrolet Chevelle Malibu convertible. This thing was the length of a bus, and it had a V8 engine to die for, and it was a big gold with light tan interior, and why I swapped him five or six cars for this thing, I have no idea. But after I'd done it, I thought, oh, shit, this is a pile of junk. And I had to then try and find a way out of it. And I can't recollect how I managed to find my way out of it, but um, the day I sold that, we raised the flag and went down the pub and had a few beers. But that probably was the worst car I'd ever taken back. 
And uh, I, I visualize it to this day. It was a disgusting looking thing. So if you want to Google it, a Chevrolet Chevelle Malibu convertible. Disgusting thing. <laughs> we all have our failings in life. Sometimes it just doesn't go uh, our way. I know that you've, yeah. you've mentioned you've got that that Vectra that that you drove back in the day that that Pete and and Derek drove at Bathurst as well. What other car? If there was another car from over the journey that you could have in that garage alongside that Vectra, what would you love to have? Well, as I said, when when we started hill climbing, uh, I had a. Minis and then the Chevron B8 and then when we sold the Chevron B8 we moved on to a Chevron B23 which was an open topped uh, Le Mans style sports car and it was a bright red car and it had done the, the European sports car championship in 72 or 73 or 72 I think with um, Red Rose Racing and it was just a fabulous fabulous car to drive. I only did hill climbs. I was only allowed to do one race a year. My father wouldn't let me race in those days. Um, so I did one race with it. And I traced it recently. I had a mad notion to buy it back. What I was going to buy it back for, I've got no idea. But I traced it and there's a very wealthy Frenchman owns the car. And I've been in contact with him and asked him if he does Le Mans Classic or a classic at Spa or Dijon or somewhere, give me a shout. If it's a two-driver race, I would love to share the car with him. And if I got the chance to buy it back and he doesn't need the money and he's got no inclination to sell it, and I'm not sure what I'd do with it other than put it in the garage and look at it, but it was that would be what I would spend the money on today. But um, Again, we ended up owning that by a swap and a car deal. We swapped our Alliance Scimitar and a bag of cash for this thing because it wasn't a lot of money in them days, but they never were because when, you know, all, all the old Formula One cars, if you dig back through any of the old motorsport magazines of 20 years ago and, and you look and see what they were selling, ex-Formula One cars, ex Le Mans, Porsches or Spices or Ducadene and all that type of stuff. They were for nothing. They were absolutely for nothing. And then all of a sudden, that historic thing has been created because a lot of the super tourers have been bought by people who were kids um, when they were running, or, or young men, not kids, but young men with no money. They've then got their own business. They've made a few quid. And they bought the car they watched on television and being driven by me, Rickard Rydell, Alan Menu, et cetera, et cetera. And then realised just why the budgets were so monstrous to run them because you can't run them easily. I know what it takes to run our car. Um, but, you know, just going back to, you could have bought a Formula One Spice, a Formula One March or a Le Mans Spice C2 car for a hundred grand. I mean, these cars are three, four, five hundred thousand pounds today. And the right Formula One car is a telephone number. So, you know, if, if you just had the foresight to, and there's some people have, some people are really clever at it, realizing, you know, what's the next thing to buy, what's the next thing to have, what's the next series that's going to become, I mean, old Mustangs, you guys have got a series out there for old historic um, 
uh, what do you call it? Um, um, Bathurst cars, haven't you? These Taranos yeah. and things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you, you, you could have bought one of them a few years back for for the price of a slab of Foster's. So, you know, there's now something to do with them. There, there now people remember the history and, and the background and the people that drove them. And that really adds to the value of the whole thing, you know? What about so, a, a Cavalier? It would be nice to have a Cavalier, wouldn't it? They're, they're still around, those things. I've got a Cavalier in my garage. Um, it looks like my race car, um, but in fact, it was it absolutely it's caged. It's the colours. It's got the wheels. It's got the interior. It's got everything in it, but it has no engine and gearbox. It used to have a thirteen hundred cc engine and gearbox in it, and it was used by Vauxhall to go to showroom events or supermarket opening and all the publicity stuff we did that they wouldn't use the race cars for. And uh, somebody offered me it a few years ago because they ended up buying it in a job lot. And I bought it, and it lies in my garage alongside the Vectra. Um, and I also have an Opel Monza, which I raced in 1984 with Jeremy Rossiter at the Tourist Trophy race at Silverstone. And it blew up. It blew a head gasket. And um, we brought it home, stuck it in the corner of the garage, and left it. Now, we're talking 39 years ago, and we've done nothing with it. Um, currently, Jamie has stripped it. I've got the engines away being rebuilt and prepped. I've got the body shell currently away being, um, we glass blast it. It's being glass blasted, and then we're going to change every pipe and cable in the car and restore the car because... When it's restored, it'll get an in because it's very. It's an Opel Monza, right? So if you just, I think if you checked, there won't be any for sale in the world. I doubt if there's very many still being competitive anywhere. I reckon this was an ex works Opel from Rüsselsheim, a complete car that somehow we borrowed and managed to keep here hostage in the UK, and it's now hostage in my garage, and. It would get an invite to any Goodwood, any historic event, because it's such an unusual beast. It wasn't the most competitive thing, but nowadays it would definitely get an invite to everything that's going. Once we're complete, we'll run it. And my garage is full up after that. I've got no more space. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can solve that easily. You just get a bigger garage job. That's all you have to do. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> One quick one just before we go. Matthew Crawley wants to know what's your favourite part of Mount Panorama? And you can't say the start to the end. Hmm. No, you're right. The favourite part is driving out the pit lane, really. Um, the, the, I would say over the top from McPhillamy, you know, you come up up, up the, up the, um, the left-hander, I can't remember what you call it now, up the left, and as you rise up the hill, um, and you just get as it levels out, and then you're heading is it McPhillamy and the little dip there, and along to Skyline, and then down the dipper. I mean, down the dipper, I would say is is one of my favourite bits because you just drop off the edge of the world. You know, there's nothing there. You're doing it by instinct and memory. You know, it's it's a great part of the track, and. Probably Conrod 
you know, when you're you're hurtling down there and it's absolutely flat on the floor and uh, into the chase, into that right-hand part of the chase, using the boys' garden on the left-hand side of the road there. These are my two favourite bits of Bathurst. We'll let you have two. You're allowed to have two. I was going for one, but... I think you are allowed to have two. Uh, you're permitted. You're permitted. John, thank you so much for the time. We thoroughly appreciate it. It's been great to to catch up. It's been a long time since we've seen you, probably the last time you were out at, at Bathurst driving for Brad and Kimmy. But uh, I know you've checked your diary, October uh, 5 to 8. We've got a few months. Let's see what we can make happen. In fact, you know what? Our listeners might start to jump on the mission here who knows? It could be a GoFundMe to get Cleland to Bathurst for 2023. Could be a thing. <laughs> yeah, brilliant, brilliant. That's right. I will start to work my wife up into a frenzy and tell her I'm not going to be here in October, the, the first fortnight in October. I'm going to be in Australia. She'll love that. <laughs> <laughs> John, thank you so much for your time. We thoroughly appreciate it and, uh, and all the very best. Great to catch up. All right, mate. Good to catch up with you. We'll catch up soon. Take care. Ah, you could listen to him all day long, couldn't you? John Clowland, what a what a thrill. What a great way to catch up with one of the legends of world touring car racing. And I've got a feeling I'm just going to keep twisting and twisting that arm of his until we see him at Bathurst again. Hopefully this October. How special would that be? 30 years on from his debut in the great race. To have John Clowland back at the mountain would be simply quite something special. Now, next week on the V8 Sleuth podcast, I've had a sit down with a guy who's also driven and continues to drive for Brad Jones Racing, as John did. Dale Wood's not the biggest name in supercars racing by his own admission, but his story is really, really interesting. He's told it in a way that no one's told it before. It's a real roller coaster ride. The highs and lows of motorsport and getting the balance between life in and out of the car. I think you'll enjoy this one. Part one of that chat comes up next week. Don't forget Castrol Motorsport News podcast with Stefan and AVL every Tuesday giving you the latest in news and insight and analysis. They are the best in the business. Tune in. You can catch it wherever you catch your pod. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And Repco Supercars Weekly. It's back generally every Friday, sometimes Thursdays. Depends on the breaking news of the week and the rhythm and flow of what's going on in the Repco Supercars Championship. But we have got you covered with the Motorsport Podcast Network. There is something for everyone nearly every day of the week. Anyway, that's me done. Hope you enjoyed this podcast with John Clellan. I will chat to you again next week with the V8 Sleuth Podcast. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online. Thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2, and oil and find out.